I will be reading from Proverbs chapter 24, verses 30 through 34. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw it and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Have you, have, you, have you ever seen a sloth in the zoo? They're cute little things, uh, maybe 5 to 15 pounds, they hang upside down, they're like a little koala bear. Um, you know, they may be cute, sloth isn't cute. People have tried to make it cute. A French philosopher once said that the sloth was actually a virtue, and the reason it's a virtue is because he said you can't find any wars or any conflicts that have been started uh, by people who are apathetic and lazy and sloth-filled. Well, that may be a cute way of looking at it, but this is a mysterious and very misunderstood uh, sin. Now, we tend to think of it as laziness, and so we wonder, how did it make this list of seven deadly sins? Is, is it really that deadly? I mean, sloth, laziness? And we think of greed and envy and and lust and gluttony. You know, th those are command a little bit more of our attention, but, but laziness? Well, I'm going to try to follow the same pattern as I have followed over the past few weeks in terms of just looking at its nature. What is sloth to define it? What is it? And then uh, what does it look like? You know, where does it manifest in our lives? And then uh, how to kill it, how to go after it, how to, how to take up arms against it. So what is it? What is sloth? It's kind of an older English term. Now, when you, look at, when you look at Proverbs and Solomon, he uses his comedic skill, he uses his, his sarcasm to instruct his son on what sloth is. And uh, I think he's using humor to aid in our memory so that maybe as we're laughing, we're also learning. And so he wants to explain to his son the nature of sloth. Now, for us... When we think of sloth, we think of laziness. We think of you know, monikers like you know, lazy bones, good for nothing, deadbeat. That's, that's what we think about it. But, but there's more to it. I, I th that is it, but there's more. Um, but we do see at least that it's a lack of labor, right? In our passage, in chapter 24, verse 30, you see this, this landowner who's not taking care of his land. I mean, the weeds are overgrowing, the walls are crumbling down. Now, you know... This is the fundamental call of God upon man in the garden of Genesis 2. He says, work and keep the garden. That's what they were called to do, work the garden. In other words, cause it to flourish, cause it to bear fruit. This man's not because the weeds are overtaking it. And keep the garden, that's more of a defensive term, more of a security term. He wasn't doing that either because the walls were crum crumbling down. So he's really not doing his work. So when you look at sloth, a simple meaning, at least from our text, is that it would be laziness at work and apathy, kind of a carelessness, a disregard. And that would surely be the case. Uh, but there's more. There's more than that. And I would say it's more than just a lack of labor, but it would be a lack of love. 
In other words, th there's this lack in the sluggard, not just on the material realm, but in the spiritual realm. You know, that there is a lack of desire for God, a lack of care for the neighbor because of a lack of love. Now, you know, Jesus said the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the fundamental responsibilities that we have as humans before God. And, and so let's look at first with God. An apathy to God born out of love. That is what sloth is. It's a, it's a spiritual resistance to not want to do the things that God has called us to do to walk in a manner worthy of his name. It's refusing to do the thousands of deaths that we have to do to grow in holiness. You know, Paul words it this way. He says that we are to put off and we're to put on. That within the Christian faith, when we're called into the Christian life, that is when the work begins. And God calls us uh, to put off sin, to put off rage, to put off envy, to put off malice, to put off lust. And that is the diligent work of the Christian. But the slothful man or the slothful woman says, I don't want to do that. There's a resistance to this project of transformation. In fact, we don't even resist God, but we even sometimes resent him that he's called us to be holy as he is holy. So sloth looks like this. I'm not wanting to engage in growing in holiness and all the sacrifices that naturally attend that. So it's not only a lack of love for God, it's also a lack of love for neighbor. You know, to love our neighbor is, is the highest command following to love God. And, and slothfulness doesn't want to do the work that, is, that we are bound to do to work through the difficulties of loving our neighbor, of sacrificing for our neighbor. Why? Well, sometimes our neighbor's awkward. Our neighbor's lives are messy. Uh, they're different than we are. They're a different age than we are. They're not like us. It's easy to hang around a bunch, of, a bunch of folks that look and act and talk just like me, but the slothfulness is evidenced when we don't make that move to love our neighbor as our, ourself. So let me give you two pictures here to bring up this lack of love. You, know, you have the idea of, of Lot's wife. Do you remember the story of Lot? He's in Sodom and Gomorrah, his wife, his two daughters, and, and so God's going to bring judgment. And God in mercy sends an angel and he pulls them out of the city. But Lot's wife doesn't really want to go. She's getting dragged out of the city, but she keeps looking back. It's a picture of somebody. They want the love of God. They want the security of salvation, but I don't want, I don't want to give up my old life. I don't want to give up all the things that I had. I don't want to give up the loves and the desires I had. There is a desire to hang on to the old, but I also want the benefits of the new. And he's saying it doesn't work that way. That's the slothful man. But lacking of love for the neighbor is seen in the parable of the Good Samaritan. So you have the, the, the man of Israel, he falls among robbers, and he's beaten, and he's almost killed. He's laying on the side of the road. And so this, this priest goes by, and the priest has responsibilities in the temple. And he sees him, and he thinks, I can't help him because I have these spiritual responsibilities, ignoring the clear responsibility to love the neighbor. And then the Levite follows him, another religious man, who has these responsibilities, and he must go to the temple. And of course, it's the Samaritan, the enemy of the man, that comes and binds him up and, and takes him to an inn and pays for his care. 
So for us, when we struggle with loving our neighbor, you know, the cultural, the cultural chasm between the Jew and the Samaritan is far greater than any distinction that we have among ourselves here. So the sloth is, is not just lacking in labor, he's not just lazy, but he's lacking in love. So let me ask you, have you ever felt that sense of resentment towards God? Why do I have to read my Bible? Why do I have to do this? Why do I have to do ministry? Why should I aspire to leadership? Why do I have to join this care group with these odd people? Do you ever ask those questions? I mean, do you ever resent God or kind of begrudge him on this call to be holy as he is holy? You know, many of us do. And, and I think probably many of us are feeling fairly convicted right now. But let me encourage you, before I go on to the next part, let me encourage you with this. With this tr- in fact, I'll just, you know, I'll share a story. Um, we had a, a person one time that left the church years ago. And so in the exit interview, um, I said, you know, what's, what's the problem trying to draw out and help them make a smooth transition? And she looked at me and she said, um, I need something lighter and fluffier. And uh, I can appreciate that. Life is hard out there. And, and sometimes the seriousness of the scriptures can be, can be heavy. There's no doubt. She wanted some, And I tried to encourage her, and I said, well, when you get cancer, uh, you're not going to want light and fluffy. You're going to want something with a bit of steel in it because to take you through it. But, but that's the way we can often be. That's a picture of, of slothfulness, that the hard work of what it is to be a Christian, we just would rather take a pass on. Well, most of us have done that, and we feel guilty about that. But uh, let me draw your mind to Christ for just a minute. You know, for the Christian, we have a great hope. We have a great hope because though we have lacked in labor and though we have lacked in love, uh, Jesus has not. You know, you know, the interesting counterpart to slothfulness in Proverbs is not being a workaholic, but it's being a diligent man or a diligent woman. And in Christ, we see this perfect diligence. We see in him no lack of labor and no lack of love. In him you see great labor, don't you? Taking on flesh, dwelling upon men, dwelling with men, you know, taking upon himself our sin and our shame and our guilt. I mean, the whole gospel story is a story of work. He has done a great divine work for us. He's borne our sin. He's borne the wrath of God. He's been crushed in death, and he's been raised in life. This is the work that he has done for us. There is, you know, as we just sang, the cross is enough. So he has been diligent in his labor, and he's diligent in his love for us. You know, I've often quoted to you from Tim Keller who says, you know, when when you look at yourself, we can never believe how absolute wicked we are, and yet at the same time, We can't believe how infinitely we've been loved when you see Christ. And so his labor of love has been for us. So as even as Levy prayed, who can ascend the hill? Only Christ can, and he has done it for us. He's acted in great labor, and he's acted in great love. So just console yourself. I I don't want you to feel conviction without the hope of the gospel. So the first part of the sermon, what is sloth? Sloth is a lack of labor, and it's a lack of love. Okay, so where do we see it in our lives? Where, where do we see this taking place? What, what are the characteristics of sloth? 
I'm going to give you three pictures of people, and you can um, you might find yourself in one, or maybe even two of them. Uh, the first picture would be uh, the sluggard, marked by his idleness. Idleness would be the operative word. He's an idle man. You see that, of course, in our passage. He's folding his hands to sleep. He's moving around in the bed to get comfortable to sleep, but he's not using his hands to actually pull the weeds up and repair the wall. The irony is it's his field. You know, it's, it's, he's the one that's not benefiting from his own labor. And, and that's the nature of the sluggard. He's so idle that he won't even do anything to serve himself. In fact, in Proverbs 26, 15, he says this. He says, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. In other words, he's so lazy that he won't even finish feeding himself. He's not even doing that which will benefit himself. Uh, but it's more than that. You know, the sluggard is just not idle because he doesn't want to take care of it. He's idle because he's a procrastinator. He's hitting the snooze button 14 times. He's turning to Facebook as soon as he has a difficult project that he has to do. Uh, he, he's, he needs constant supervision to get his work done. You know, it's like an old engine. If, if it's tough to get him started. But, but once you get him started, it's tough to keep him going. You know, he has plans and purposes and ideas that just never seem to come to fruition. The sluggard is like, uh, in Proverbs 26, Solomon says, like a door turns on its hinges, so the sluggard turns on his bed. He's moving, but he's really not doing anything. He's not accomplishing anything. This is the sluggard. The sluggard's not just a procrastinator. He's actually a rationalizer as well. It says in Proverbs 22 that the sluggard says there's a lion in the streets. Now, why does the sluggard say that? Well, by the way, there were lions in Israel, but they were few and far between. And they don't generally hunt during the day. They hunt at night. And if they are to hunt in the day, they're not going to hunt in the city. So why is the sluggard trying to get us to believe there's a lion in the streets? Well, because he doesn't want to work. And he's trying to rationalize his own laziness. He's trying to get you to agree with him. Yeah, if there might be a lion out there, I shouldn't go out there. It'd be dangerous. Work's not that important. He's only justifying what he already wants in his heart. This is the life of the sluggard. It's just a life of little labor to no labor. Many of you are old enough to um, remember the hit song by Otis Redding, which is uh, sitting by the dock of the bay. It was in the 60s, but it's still played on the radio today. It has a great beat to it. If I had a little more courage, I have sung it out loud, and I would sing it out loud, but it's being recorded. So, But anyways... <laughs> Let me, read you, let me read you part of it. He says, I left my home in Georgia, headed for the Frisco Bay, because I've had nothing to live for and look like nothing's going to come my way. So I'm just going to sit on the dock of the bay watching the tide roll away. I'm sitting on the dock of the bay wasting time. And that's the refrain. On the, I'm just wasting time. I'm just idle. I'm doing nothing. Now, you know, there's a survey done uh, by Eric Kirst, who is an economist at the University of Chicago, where he found out that young men who do not have a college degree, young men from the age of 21 to 30, 20% of them have no job. They're not going to school. 20%, this is a large group of people of our country, they have no job, they're not going to school, and 70% of those are living with their parents, living in their homes of origin. You know, this is just idleness, pure and simple. It's, nobody's working. 
Now, this kind of application, you know, this kind of idleness, you have people in your minds right now that fit this position. It may be a teenager, it may be a family member, but I'm going to ask you to do the challenging work of looking at yourself where there might be idleness, where there might be procrastination, where there might be rationalization. You know, where do you spend your time? How much time is invested in a, a TV series? Or how much time is invested in Facebook? Or how much time is invested in computer games? You know, do you tend to want to watch a show rather than read a book? Would you rather talk than work? Would you rather do the easiest thing first? And, and maybe if you get around to it, to do the harder thing? If I were to ask the women in this room that who among you has asked your husband to do a job around the house that is more than 30 days old, how many of you would stand? Don't. It's Father's Day. We don't want to go there. We go there tomorrow morning, maybe. But how, how many of you have things that are not getting done? Because I'll get to it, I'll get to it. There's a sense of idleness there. And, and, and wasting time. And this is what sloth looks like. Richard Neuhaus was a kind of a cultural critic who has uh, passed away recently. He says, evenings without number obliterated by the television. Evenings, neither of entertainment nor education, but of narcotized defense against time and quality. What he's saying here is that we medicate ourselves and our despair by watching TV or other forms of entertainment. And you and I both have watched enough movies that you walk away from most movies and you say, why did I watch that movie? Now, two hours, just wasted. Some movies are good. They're done well. They're excellent. They're entertaining. They have a lot of value to them. But a lot of movies are just waste. So th there's a certain idleness to sloth. That's what it looks like. But, but it's not just idleness. There is a busyness to sloth. This is where I think some of you may be in for a bit of a surprise. The workaholic can be slothful. He can. Now listen, I, I know in America we pride ourselves on our industry. We, our Google calendars are chock full. We never miss a day of work. We never miss a moment of time. Uh, we, we, in fact, find value on how busy we are. We actually like to tell people it's a sense of pride. This is how busy I really am. And, and in fact, I'm even accusing you of being slothful just blows your mind because you're like, no, I'm working hard. I'm providing for my family. I'm providing a living. I'm taking care of people. But remember, sloth is not simply the unwillingness to work. It's the unwillingness to do the important things. In other words, it, it's, it's, it's knowing what needs to be done, when it needs to be done, and then doing it. That's, that's the nature of of overcoming sloth. Sloth is, you may be busy all the time doing temporal and material things that serve your interests or your tastes, but, but you're not doing the harder things. You're not doing the more important things. So, so for example, you know, if there's a challenging thing to do, uh, you all of a sudden find time to clear your desk. I'm going to straighten my desk up. I'm going you know, to clean the closet. I'm going to go out and cut the grass. In other words, some of those things are easier to do than doing the hard work of praying for more than a nanosecond or reading the Bible on a consecutive basis or looking at your life and fighting sin and drawing people into it to say, I need your help in this life or, or taking your child and, and instructing him and, or her in the things of God. 
generally, young children aren't running to you with the Bible saying, please read and explain it to me. There's a challenge in leading your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. It takes work. It takes effort. There is oftentimes many combative conversations. The slothfulness is, no, that's all right. So they take a pass on that. So, the, so slothfulness can be a very strong busyness. It can be very active. You're just active in doing the things that are less important. You're missing the higher obligations of life. So, so it's not just idleness, it's busyness. So are you lazy in doing the important things in life? So look at your parenting for a minute. If you're here and you're a parent, if you're a Christian parent, you know, I have no doubt that you provide uh, diligently for their educational and their uh, financial needs. But do you put the same effort into the spiritual development of your children? If, if that's ignored or if that's minimized to a large degree, there may be an area of sloth to consider. I think about the, um, I remember one time, a long time ago, I asked a man about how he was doing, because usually it's a struggle for men to be involved in the spiritual development of their kids, and I said, how's that going? And he says, well, I'm not much on the Bible. My, my wife knows the Bible really well, and she does all the talking, all the teaching of the child. And I said, well, it would be nice if it worked that way, but it really doesn't. I mean, there is a necessary involvement for you as a father to be in the direction, the spiritual direction of your child's life. So that's an area of sloth, or in your friendships, for example. In your friendships, you know, friendships, there has to be a degree of give and take, me serving you, you serving me. That's the way friendships work. And if you come into a friendship and you're always looking to share about what's going on in your life, and you're always looking to talk about what's going on in your world, and you're always looking, that's not a friendship. It's narcissism. A, a, a friendship, and that's a sloth-filled friendship. A friendship demands you to say, how are you doing? What are you doing? When they try to get off the topic, you keep it on them. That, that you're willing to spend time on getting to know where they are, how they're struggling, what they're doing, what is going well in their life, what's going tough, how can I pray for you, where I'm actively engaged in wanting to know your soul. But that takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of diligence and effort. The slothful person says, no, that's all right. Or, or if you look in your marriages. You know, your marriages are a place that are developed, for the Christian marriage, it develops in one flesh. But that one flesh takes effort. It takes effort to, <clears throat> to consider her interests more important than mine. It, it takes effort to ask her about the day, pray for her, how your life is going, vice versa. You know, working together on making decisions in a collaborative way. Putting the interests of others above your own. But a lot of marriages are marked with sloth because you have communications on the information necessary to run a home, but not in the cultivation of a soul. Kathleen Norris is an American writer, and she says, marriage is eternal, but it's also daily, as daily and unromantic as housekeeping. It is through daily practices and disciplines, whether we feel like doing them or not, that the decision to love is renewed and refreshed and the commitment of love is, is kept alive. Marriage is difficult work. It takes a lot of effort. And a lot of us take a pass on that, and that would be slothfulness. So you can be busy in life and still be slothful by missing the important things. Let me give you a picture of this one, like I gave you the other. Mary and Martha. You know the story. Mary and Martha, sisters, Jesus comes to eat and teach, and Mary sits there and and just listens at the feet of Jesus. Martha's busy all, all about getting food, cleaning the house. She is just a, 
a busy bee, keeping it all going. And at the end, she's got a little bit of frustration, maybe, that Mary's just been sitting there parked, and I'm doing all the work. And Jesus says that, you know, Mary chose the better. Now, a, a foolish read and a simplistic read of the story is be Mary and not Martha. And that would be wrong. Uh, our sympathies kind of go to Martha because we think, well, she was the one working hard. Uh, the, the issue, though, is a matter of degree. It's not be Martha or be Mary. It's an issue of degree that at that time, the unique opportunity, the best thing was to sit and listen to Christ, even if you have hunger pains. But she chose a good thing, but it wasn't the best thing. Men and women, are we choosing the good and not the best? You can be very busy with good things and you're missing the best things. Okay, so that's idleness and busyness. There's a third one and that's aimlessness. Aimlessness. There's a purposelessness to life. There's a book that I've read a number of times, The Stranger by Albert Camus. Many of you perhaps have read it. It has probably some of the most startling opening line of any book I've read. And it's simply this. Mother died today. Yesterday, maybe. It's a book on absurdity, of uninterest, disinterest, that, that life is just boredom. The soul of this person, this aimless, he doesn't love or he doesn't hate. He just doesn't care. He's absolute lukewarm on everything. He has no interest. The only, the only interest he has is to maintain some degree of comfort. If there's something he has to do, he wants to get it done to get back to doing nothing. There is a purposelessness and aimlessness to life that is the epitome of sloth. Frederick Buechner, a current writer, says, Sloth is not to be confused with laziness. A lazy man, a man who sits around and watches the grass grow, may be a man at peace. His sun-drenched, bumblebee dreaming may be the prelude to action. A slothful man, on the other hand, may be a very busy man. He is a man who goes through the motions, who flies on an automatic pilot. Like a man with a bad head cold, he has mostly lost his sense of taste and smell. He knows something's wrong with him, but not wrong enough to do anything about it. Other people come and go, but through glazed eyes, he hardly notices them. He's letting things run their course. He's getting through his life. There, there's a sense of it. This is kind of the, the blight of our current culture. You know, in, a, in the modern era, uh, back a few generations, there was this profound, although I would argue false hope, in the progress of man that with technology and with science, we're going to move ahead and we're going to right the wrongs of this world. Well, a couple world wars kind of sunk that idea. We live in what's now called the postmodern era. And it's kind of an aimless era. There's a cynicism about the era of just, it doesn't matter. I don't care. You oftentimes hear it in the youth. It just doesn't matter if I do it or not. It doesn't care. And, and that's kind of where we are right now. Sloth on steroids. Here we are, human beings, made in the image of God for purposes of eternal nature, and out of our mouth is, that doesn't matter. Dorothy Sayers was another English essayist, and she was a, a, a fantastic writer. And here's what she says about the nature of our times. The sin of our times is the sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive because there's nothing for which it will die. So, so when you look at sloth, you see a idleness, a busyness, and a purposelessness to it. 
Uh, it's, I hope you see why they called it a deadly sin. It's deadly. It, it, it's deadly not just to, your, just to your financial wealth. You know, Proverbs is, is big in terms of, in our passage here, that he folds his hands for a little more sleep. You know, Proverbs is big on if you don't work, then things will be going poorly for you. That the idle man doesn't eat well. And, and we see that here in this passage, that, that it doesn't bode well for the future. But, but the material loss is really the least of my concerns. It's more the relational loss that comes. When we are slothful in relationship with one another, when we fail to use our gifts, when we fail to exercise love and admonition to one another, then, then our relationships are the poor for it. We think of poverty simply in material terms. Poverty is much broader than just material issues. It has to do with relationships, that many of our relationships are literally poverty-stricken because there is little Christ-centered nature to it. Because we're tired. We don't want to do the work that it takes to have a relationship that is beyond that deep. It's hard to have a depth of relationship that is meaningful, centered on Christ, striving with one another to prepare one another for that day that we'll see God. It takes work. It takes vulnerability. It takes a willingness to expose oneself, and we don't want it. And let me give you an example of how relationships will suffer. So a husband and wife, you and I'll use Carol and I. We have a fight. She shares her piece of the story. I share my piece of the story. I think I'm right. She thinks she's right. Tempers rise. We retreat to different corners of the house like prize fighters, right? And there I am in the corner, seething with anger over this argument. So I just busted through the second deadly sin. I can't believe she can't see how right I am. That's the first deadly sin. I'm not willing to take my own soul to task to discern what did I really want that I'm getting so angry about? What were my desires that were baking in me? That was the third deadly sin, envy. And I'm unwilling to go across the house to reconcile with my bride because I don't want to do the work. That's sloth. That's not resist. It's just, call it what it is. It's a laziness and my relationship with my wife is moving into poverty because of my unwillingness to do the heavy lifting of humbling myself and reconciling that relationship. So there's a cost material, there's a cost relationally, there's also a cost to you. Your own soul becomes corroded. Why? Because this idea, you know, he says in Proverbs 13, 4, he says, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. You know, when we're slothful, we're always hungry, but we're never satisfied. We're never, we're always distracted. We're never, ever, ever satisfied. That's why Pascal, French philosopher, says, the way to make a man miserable, remove his distractions. If you pull out the distractions, then he sees what he has, and it's nothing, because we're never satisfied. But not just that, even our relationship with God. Our relationship with God becomes corrosive. Why? Because God has given us means of grace. He's given us means of grace. He's given us the scriptures. He's given us prayer. He's given us the community in which to dwell in, to, to befriend one another. He's given us these various means of grace to grow in our knowledge of him. See, growing in faith is not like riding a bike. It's not like once you learn it, you got it. If I don't pick up a bike in 20 years, I can still get on and ride it. 
It's not like that. The work of God in the soul of a man or woman, it is this bilateral relationship for the Christian where we're striving to walk in holiness. He's giving us grace in the striving. We're striving further, and it's this, it's this syncretism with God through his spirit and changing us. But the slothful person, he doesn't want to read. He doesn't want to deal with his soul. He doesn't want to intersect other people. As soon as the service is over, he's out the door so he doesn't have to engage in conversation. It, that's just slothfulness, and it stunts our growth. So you, you see the nature of sloth. Sloth is a lack of labor, which is really a lack of love. And then you've seen how sloth is manifest in, in idleness and busyness and purposelessness or aimlessness. So what do we do with this monster? How are we going to kill it? Well, the first thing I would ask you to do is to consider where it is in your own life. That's what, the, that's what the, uh, Solomon instructed his son. He says, look in 32, he says, Then I saw and I considered it. I looked and I received instruction. Well, we have to be willing to consider that it exists within us. And we have to be willing to receive the instruction we need. Now, this is not an easy thing for the sluggard or for the slothful person. Because Proverbs says in 26, a sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. He's beyond counsel. We don't want to be this person. We don't want to be beyond counsel. We want to be able to heed the instruction. So you can imagine Solomon's taking his son, he's walking along the road, and he says, see that field over there? Look at all the weeds. Look at the walls broken down. Look at him, he's just in his house sleeping. What do you think is the future of that man? So he's instructing his son about the disaster that will come upon the slothful. So we need, and he said, I considered it, and I received the instruction. Will we receive the instruction? Will you consider it? Will you take the hard look? You know, another author had said this, a modern author, uh, not a modern author in the middle of the 20th century, she says, modern people don't like to take long looks at anything because we're intellectually lazy. Not because we are intellectually lazy. I would argue that now, that I think we probably are. But modern people, she says, don't take long looks at anything because we lack courage. It's hard to look at where you might be slothful. Are you slothful in your, in your own devotions to God? Is a lack of your love for God born out of a lack of knowledge of the gospel? Is it causing you to just be absolutely and consistently inconsistent over your over your seeking of God through the word or through the community of faith? Are you slothful with engaging your spouse in the things of God, praying for her, she praying for you? Are you slothful in your instruction over with your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord? Are you slothful at work, not giving a full day's labor for what they're paying you? Where are areas of sloth? Don't be afraid to look. And if you need, ask questions. Ask a friend. Where do you see me? If you're, if you're still living at home, ask your parents. Where do you see slothfulness in me? If, if you're a husband, ask your wife. Or if, if you have a friend, ask a friend. Where do you see me? Really just going on autopilot rather than being intentional in my love for God. It's a, it takes courage. That's why she says, you know, we don't want to take a long look because if we do, we might not like what we see. And then I would say confess it, repent. That's the beauty of the gospel. Remember, Christians are the only intellectually honest people on the planet. Why? Because we know that we've been forgiven. We can be totally honest about our shortcomings and our brokenness and our sin. We can do that because we have been forgiven. 
Other people have an image to protect. Other people have an image to cast. They cannot afford for you to know what they're really like. It's like, have you ever had that experience when you're talking with your wife about somebody and you realize you hadn't hung up the phone? That was before iPhones, by the way. But, but that happens, and all of a sudden you're like startled. If people really knew you, but we as Christians can be intellectually honest with who we are, and then you repent, and then you turn to the gospel, and you know that one has ascended the holy hill, one who has pure hands and a pure heart. And then I would say, seek God's spirit for help. You know, Jesus said clearly in Luke, he said, even though you are evil and you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Ask for the spirit of God. Ask for the help from the spirit of God to kill this sin. You know, in Romans 8, 13, he says that we put to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of the spirit. Now, how does this work? I'm working, the Spirit's working. Let me try to give you an analogy. The, the relationship between our efforts and, and the move of God is like being a sailboat, lifting the sails. If you're on a sailboat without the sails up, the wind blows by you. You raising the sails, the works that you do, the means of grace that you engage, when you raise those sails, then the wind catches the sails and moves the boat. You're just raising the sails. The wind's moving the boat. Your sails aren't moving the boat, but, they, but that's how the spirit and how our efforts work together to put sin to death. So ask for the spirit of God that you might walk in the power of the spirit and not in the desires of the flesh. Okay, the second thing I would encourage you to do is to revalue the dignity of work. You know, we thank God it's Friday. Christian thanks God it's Monday. God has equipped us, he's given us talents and abilities, not simply for our pleasure, but to bring him glory and to better those around us. Your gifts are not for you alone. Remember how Jesus chided the servant who didn't use his gifts. You know what he calls them? Wicked and slothful. There's the sloth. We don't use our gifts for the betterment. So, so re-image work, many of you, Many of you work in very difficult contexts and very difficult situations, and you need a lot of prayer. And you really need to have a good focus on the power of God to do that well. So re-engage in the value of work for his glory, for his purposes. Do you realize that when the Christian works, and it can be a job making hammers, or it can be a job preaching sermons, they both bring glory to God when they're done in his name. And they both are works that last. You can't take anything with you when you leave this planet. You came in naked and you're going out probably in a cheap suit. And the only thing you take with you is that which you have done. That's why Jesus says, not even a cup of cold water will be forgotten by God. So if you, are, if you have a mindset like, well, he's a preacher, he's done a lot of great things for God, but you know what, I'm just laboring faithfully and I'm doing this job making hammers and, and serving my family and serving in the church. To God, they're this, a cup of cold water will never be forgotten. So don't, don't do that kind of proportional analysis that isn't found in the scriptures. Okay, the third thing I would encourage you to do is persevere. And this may seem counterintuitive. It's like you're saying persevere. Well, well of course, you know, persevering is striving forward. So let me explain what I mean. Many of you, I think, probably right now hearing the sermon might be a bit discouraged 
over the fact that you might be older and you might be thinking, well, I've wasted all this time or I'm younger and I don't really have any gifts. That I, you know, I haven't really done a lot with my life or maybe you're in the middle of life and you feel like, like wow, I've blown it here and I've blown it here. Well, let me tell you, and I was, in, I was helped by Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was this great preacher in uh, Britain in the second or the first half of the 20th century. And he says, the greatest temptation for the Christian is not to quit the faith. That's not the greatest temptation. He says, the greatest temptation is to resign yourself to mediocrity, to resign yourself to just a status quo. This is the way it is. This is the way it's going to be. And he says the temptation comes greatest in the middle years. And what he means by middle years is when you come to faith in Christ, there's an excitement. My sins have been forgiven. You understand the gospel. You begin to see what transcendent truth is. Relationships are formed, and there's an excitement to the faith. But then you get along in the faith 10, 15, 20 years, and you start suffering more than maybe you thought you would. And the Christian faith feels a little bit harder than you thought it might be. And it seems a lot longer than you thought it might be. Maybe some of your prayers aren't answered the way you'd hoped. And maybe the church turns out to be more of a failed experiment, you know, because of all the awkward people in it. He says that is when the temptation is greatest, to move into just giving in to sloth. Well, let me encourage you with the words from the writer of Hebrews who says, we desire each of you to show the same earnestness, to have full assurance of hope until the end, until the end. In other words, we are in a race till the end. This isn't a race that you run and then jog. We intentionally run. He says, till the end. He says, so that you may not be sluggish or the sluggard, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience have inherited the promises. That the promises of God are to fuel this perseverance in faith until the end. Remember that, that your faith is... This idea of persevering, when you come to faith, it's not like you're given a birth certificate, like when you're born. And then you put the thing away, and you only pull it out when you have to prove your identity to somebody. The faith is something that we persevere in. It's a daily faith. It's a daily grind. Oftentimes, it's not romantic. Uh, but we're striving to the promises. And this is where the nature of the church is so significant. There is no way you can do a Jesus and me devotional life and think you're going to make it. You need the community of faith. We need active discipling relationships. We need that vulnerability between one another to get through this life strong in faith. We need the encouragement of one another. And if you've kind of isolated yourself in your sin or you've isolated yourself in your personality and I just do better with, with no friends, I'm sorry to say it, it's, it's not that way. You know, that's why Sundays are so important. You know, when we look at, we encourage Sunday attendance on a regular basis. We know many of you come every week. Some come every other. Some come usually once a month, and some come around the holidays. But these Sundays are like smelling salts. I mean, today's like a smelling salt. It kind of wakes you up. You know, nothing in this world's going to give you, when the word's broken for you, we feel like this is really an essential part of your perseverance in the faith, that, that you're being instructed, even woken up. It's like Paul says, awake, O sleeper, in Ephesians chapter 5. The days are evil. Make the most of your time. So let's persevere together. That's why the writer says in Hebrews, he says, let's encourage one another. All the more as you see the day approaching. Let us spur on one another towards love and good deeds. We need one another to do this. Okay, the last thing would be to cherish the gospel. 
to cherish the gospel. The same writer in Hebrews, he was dealing with a dull group. He was dealing with sluggish people. He said in chapter 5, you become slow, you become dull of hearing. I'm calling you to defeat sloth. You have to cherish the gospel. Many of you, many of us in time, we grow dull of hearing. The gospel isn't as significant. You know the gospel. You know what Jesus did. You know your sins are forgiven. And there seems to be that familiarity breeds contempt. It's like, yeah, whatever. I want us to refresh ourselves in the gospel. The writer of Hebrews was saying it's not simply mentally understanding the nature of the gospel, but it's working out the implications of the gospel in our life. So remember, Christianity is not about what you do for God. Christianity is fundamentally about what he has done for you in the gospel. And and this gospel, when you consider that God has chosen to send his son to forgive us, to give us an imperishable inheritance, to guarantee us a place in the new heavens and the new earth, to dwell together and serve and love him eternally, to have vistas of of information and joy made known to us that will blow our mind. He's given us all these things, and that's to create affections and joy in our soul so that out of the overflow of our joy, we want to serve, we want to work, we want to be diligent. We don't want to be slothful. That's the irony of sloth, is they're trying to find a rest that provides no rest. And yet the Christian faith is calling us to enter into a true rest, a true rest in the gospel by faith. If you're, not, if you're a Christian here, I, I hope you hear the convicting voice along with the exhortation to let the doctrine of the gospel fuel good works, strong works, a life of diligence, not trying to somehow secure God's favor. Jesus has secured his favor for us when he says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. God is pleased in Christ. And by faith, we join Christ. If you're not a Christian here, and you feel the weight of work, you feel the weight of life, you feel the weight of an aimlessness in this life, that Jesus' words were clear. He says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm humble and gentle of heart, and I'll give you rest for your souls. So the leisure that you seek through all these man-made efforts, the rest is found in Christ and him alone. So let's take a minute now and just silently perhaps confess your sins to God or seek his spirit to fill you to walk in a manner worthy or thank him for how he has moved in your life. And then I'll close us in a moment.